This podcast is supported by Comcast Business. You're in tech in 2024. Of course you're busy. Whether it's staying on top of potential cyber threats or keeping up with what's trending in tech, you need to know your network is covered. You need a partner you can rely on. You need one provider with fully integrated network and security solutions. You need Comcast Business for managed services and tailored solutions that are built to keep your business going. Powering the CIOs that make it happen. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Anita Hill. She's a professor at Brandeis University, where she focuses on gender, race, social policy, and legal history. Hill rose to national attention after George H.W. Bush nominated Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court in 1991. She testified under oath that she'd been sexually harassed by Thomas, and then she was grilled by the all-white, all-male Senate Judiciary Committee, led by none other than Joe Biden. Can you... Tell the committee what was the most embarrassing of all the incidences that you have alleged. I think the one that was the most embarrassing was his discussion of of pornography involving these women with large breasts and and ha- engaged in variety of sex with different people or, or animals. That was the thing that embarrassed me the most and made me feel the most humiliated. Now President Biden is the one picking the nominee, and he's committed to appointing a Black woman to the high court. So I wanted to talk to Hill about what she thinks of that promise, how our courts reflect our country or don't, and her take on today's cancel culture. Professor Anita Hill, welcome to Sway. Thank you for having me. Let's start. I think we'll start off with the Supreme Court news. Um, I just would love to know what you think of President Biden's pledge to appoint a black woman to the court. Well, I think it's time for a black woman to be on the court. But I also think it's an important time and opportunity for us to have a public conversation about judging and the role of the judicial system uh, in our lives today. I don't think we've had that conversation in a way that includes both consideration of race and gender. And I think we should be asking ourselves, who are the people who are missing from positions of power and influence in our systems? Mm -hmm. At the same time, Biden coming out and committing to a Black woman to hold this role, similar to what he did with the VP pick, do you think that is a good thing, just to state that on its face? Well, I think, you know, the question is, a good thing in what way? I think that what the response has been is that it was a bad thing to do politically. And I think it depends on how you think about the court. If you think that the court should be representative of the people and their experiences, then an announcement that I'm going to select someone who represents perhaps a new set of experiences and new ideas and bring those to the court, then I think that it makes perfect sense to make that announcement. I think it 
gives you a sense of what we should be talking about in this country anyway. Uh, and I mean, we look at the judiciary right now and we know it's overrepresented in terms of the population of white men who are sitting in the federal judiciary. A disproportionate number of those men are former corporate lawyers or prosecutors. Uh, but at its core, the real problem is that the composition of the federal judiciary at this point really reflects the president's and the Senate's limited political and judicial imagination for this country. Right. I mean, it's interesting. It's a discomfort. I've always found that people in areas I've written about a lot, they're not so much afraid of things, but that they're comfortable with people like them. Do you think it's as simple as that? I think that, you know, if you look at some of the research about who our social contacts are, white people are more likely to have all white social contacts or all one race social contacts than people of color are. And so if you're looking to those people to comment on what the Supreme Court should look like, it's just like when they hire in a company, they hire people or select people or favor people who look like them. And I do think there's some fear that has been sort of mongered, if you will. <laughs> uh, um, and the fear mongering really is around veiled or not so veiled suggestions that uh, the appointment of a Black female is somehow going to take away from the public perception of the competence of the courts. And it you know, feeds into different ideas about intellect and integrity and objectivity that I think are entirely misplaced. There have been brilliant Black women who have been on the bench for the last six or seven decades in sizable numbers, not nearly enough, but in sizable numbers, and others who have never made it to the bench who are brilliant lawyers who absolutely do qualify. And so I think there is a bit of race baiting. That's part of, I think, what is causing people fear. Um, let me back up. I don't think people appreciate how political the uh, judicial selection process is. And I don't mean that in a partisan, in terms of partisan politics. When I say it's lack of presidential imagination, I think it extends through to all the presidents in terms of the appointments they've made. Um, but it's also built in the structure. You know, you have a group of people who are mostly male and mostly white deciding who will be our leadership, who will have the opportunity to talk about their experiences in deliberations with other justices. I think people see that as, as something that shouldn't change because it's what they've had Always. Yeah, this is the way we've done it. Whenever someone says that to me, I'm like, well, not today. Yeah, and why? And why haven't we always done it that way? Right. Um, Press Secretary uh, Jen Psaki was asked recently, President Biden consulted you, speaking of imagination, about his Supreme Court nominee. She said she wasn't sure. Have you heard from Biden on this, President Biden? No, I haven't. You have not. And you haven't talked to anyone at the White House about your opinions? No, I haven't. 
Well, let's go through them. I'd love to know your opinions about who he should appoint. There appear to be three frontrunners, Judge Jackson on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, Justice Kruger, California Supreme Court Justice, and uh, Judge Childs from the U.S. District Court for the District of South Carolina. I'd love to get your opinions about each of these nominees. Well, I can tell you that I don't have a complete record, and I hope that anybody who is making those decisions has more of a record to go by than I do. What I will say is that on their face, I think that any of them are qualified. You know, I think the dwelling on the qualifications is really part of the problem. You know, I talked to so many people who recognize just what we were talking about, that we don't talk about those qualifications when they are white males. We make presumptions in favor of their qualifications. And then we go on to ask, the specific questions about what will they bring to the bench and how do they think about the law. And for me, those are the questions that we should be asking of these particular individuals. Right. Now, some people have been pushing for you as a nominee. On on Late Night, Jimmy Kimmel joked about this going full circle, given your history with President Biden. Uh, A letter to the editor of the Baltimore Sun advocated for the same, saying Ms. Hill meets all the qualifications for the bench, intelligence, courage, and commitment to the truth. Was that ever a path that you thought about? You know, I think every lawyer has probably thought about it. (laughs) Yeah, right. right. (laughs) Uh, You know, I I like putting thought about it in past tense. Uh (laughs) It's not something I think about today so much. But I, I, but to be honest with you, you're young enough. (laughs) What do you mean? You'd be young for the court. uh, Well, you know, uh, were I to have the opportunity to be nominated, um, I think I I would be irresponsible not to consider it. It doesn't mean that I would necessarily say yes to it, but it does mean that I would have a responsibility to consider it because I do care about the court. I do care about the law. I do care about how we are going to protect people who haven't been protected and how I could represent people who perhaps have not been represented when the justices sit in deliberation. And so I think that's important. But I do also believe and know that there are many others who can do that as well. Are there any particular qualities you think the president should be looking for if you're advising him? What would you say? Yes. Well, first of all, I would think that anybody who is on the Supreme Court should have a sense that the law's protections should be progressive. And that given all of the inequities that we know exist, we should be thinking broadly about how do we protect what we have in terms of the language of equal protection under the law? How do we think about that in broad terms rather than tipping the balance in favor of corporate interests? And I think we've lost track of that. I think especially in the areas that I deal with, uh, workplace discrimination and other forms of bias. So what are the biggest decisions ahead for this court that you think this pick matters uh, so much? Professor us here. Uh, 
Well, I think there are so many. I think the questions around voting rights are really going to be important. You know, you think about that in terms of race, but I also think we need somebody to have a conversation about that in terms of gender, specifically because Black women's voting participation is very important. So anything that reduces their right to vote or their access to voting has a special impact on their sense of citizenship. So I think it's important to have that voice represented in any case where it comes forward. So voting rights is one. You know, of course, as a university professor, I think the issue of affirmative action is coming up and it it will be decided in, in a way that is going to deviate from the decision in the Grutter case, an opinion written by Sandra Day O'Connor, that allowed for race to be a consideration in admission and allowed for diversity in colleges and universities to be a priority for learning. So I think that's going to be an important decision. Affirmative action voting rights. Yeah, affirmative action voting rights. I think... Some of the areas that I know will be important is, uh, of course, the right to abortions. I'm not quite sure where we're headed with that, but you know, there is a movement to move the decision about what is allowable in terms of abortion to the states. I think that that is really, well, let me just say it this way. I think that what will happen is that it undermines the 14th Amendment, equal protection, because what it does is it allows for a hodgepodge of decisions in terms of what a woman's right is from state to state. And so we have no real standard that says what is a person's right under the U.S. Constitution. Or they do nothing and let it be chipped away. That's another way to do it. Yeah, that's one way to do it. But, you know, I think that, unfortunately, doing nothing is not what the more conservative people on this court will argue for. They want to, I think, draw a line in the sand. Uh, Two men on the court have been accused of sexual misconduct. There are still lifetime appointments. Is there a structural fix for this? Because one of the ways to do this, what you're talking about, getting more viewpoints, is one, term limits for justices or expanding the court. How, How do you feel about each of them? Well, you know, what I I think is that neither one of them are fixes. Really? Why is that? Well, because I think the real fix is to have a better process for putting people on the court. And what you saw in the Thomas hearing, as well as the Kavanaugh hearing, was a process that was flawed, that didn't take in all information, that had limited investigation, that had an investigation that was under the control of the person who nominated the candidate who was uh, faced with an accusation of sexual assault in one case and sexual harassment in another. And I think the fix is to have a better process for vetting. And so that now the damage is done. I mean, we know that 
following the Thomas confirmation hearing, confidence in the court, in the integrity of court has diminished. And so limiting terms, I, I just don't think that that is a sound way to make judgments that if if we want to to try to address a problem, we should address it directly. At the beginning, rather than just get them get them off when they're bad, for example. Right, yeah. At the beginning and after the fact, if we want a fix, then we should direct address the particular problem. So, for example, some people have argued that you know, the Supreme Court should be subject to more ethical rules of conduct than they are right now. And so I think that is a much more direct approach to addressing people with specific problems. So give me an example of that. What would that ethical around stocks, around what, around spouses? Well, yes. <laughs> around stocks is is only one thing around a political activity or you know, in the Kavanaugh situation, one of the things that happened was that after the nominee was confirmed, investigations of his behavior stopped. So you think it shouldn't have stopped with what, what happened, whether it was Justice Thomas or Justice Kavanaugh? It shouldn't have happened with anyone. I think the fact that you've reached the highest court means that you should be held to the highest standards. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Ellen Pau, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Anita Hill after the break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look. Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that <laughs> should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. So the process is a problem. So you obviously have an inside view of the process with uh, Justice Thomas in 1991. What should have been different there? Can you give me a sense of what coming forward was like? What should it have been like? 
Well, first of all, there should have been some kind of established process for allowing individuals who have complaints to come forward. There still is not, as far as I know. I don't know that the Senate Judiciary Committee has put in place rules for intaking that complaint, for investigating that complaint, for whether or not they're going to have public hearings on the complaint, how they will then make their decision. I mean, none of that exists as far as I know. So what when you think about what it was like then, did that strike you at the time that the, the process was so chaotic? Because that's what it feels like. Well, it did strike me at the time. It was absolutely chaotic and uncertain. And I think it showed. I think it was pretty clear for anybody watching that that was a problem and that the ultimate outcome was not simply that Thomas was confirmed, but that people lost confidence and trust in the court because they couldn't trust the way that people get onto the court. I think that is a problem that we haven't reckoned with. All right. It's really striking, though, to listen to the hearing now and remember how the senators, all white, all male, treated you. I want to play one clip from, sorry, I apologize in advance, one clip from the hearings. This is Senator Howell Heflin, Democrat of Alabama. In trying to determine whether you are telling falsehoods or not, I've got to determine what your motivation might be. Are you a scorned woman? Are you a a zealot civil rights believer that progress will be turned back if Clarence Thomas goes on the court? I, no, I don't. Wow, I just can't even believe that. Yeah, I mean, what is a zealot civil rights believer? I mean, I, in, I, I think, you know... I think it's uh, meant to be an insult, I'm pretty sure, still. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, what he does is he borrows from a lot of the tactics of fear-mongering, that here's a Black woman sitting in front of me, she must be a radical, she must be vengeful, she must be any number of things that I wasn't, But those were the myths and the the stories that people believed in, and those were the stories that I think gave the Senate cover for confirming him. So that's where we are. And the one thing that I, I want people to understand is that when I appeared in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and those kinds of questions were raised, these are the same people who are deciding who should be on the court. And they are looking to put people on the court whose experiences they understand and that they can relate to. And that's why we have this overrepresentation of white former corporate lawyers. Because they didn't understand you. They didn't understand me because I held no political currency. My experience um, wasn't even part of how what they could imagine was even significant in terms of judging. Right. So they had to put you in a box of these scorned women or zealot. At the time, what did you think when they did that? And what do you think now looking back on that? 
Well, when I think now, I think that the problem is there are those who are trying to put Black women in a box, whether it's a Black woman who comes forward to talk about their experience of harassment, or whether it's a woman who will be considered uh, for the Supreme Court, that there will be those boxes that they will be put in. They will be presumed to be incompetent. They will be presumed to be biased. And I wouldn't be surprised if this came up. They will be presumed to be hard and difficult to get along with. I think all of those tropes are going to be presented and become part of the conversation, whether it's behind the scenes or in the public. And I think that is what has allowed us, those boxes that we are put in, has allowed for this country to lack a diverse judicial system that speaks to the population and represents the population. So at that time, you were the target of a lot of abuse in 1991. What form did it come in at the time? Besides this, I've considered this abuse, these senators' questions. But what did you encounter? Well, it, it came about in a number of ways that I think women experience when they come forward with charges of sexual assault or sexual harassment or rape. I think we've witnessed it over and over in the last five to 10 years especially. It came in the form of dismissiveness, the idea that whatever I complained about wasn't so bad. It wasn't anything that they needed to take account of in terms of evaluating his competency for a position on the Supreme Court. It comes in the form of denial in the sense that, well, I just don't believe that it happened. I believe that perhaps she's making this up because she's vengeful or because she's a zealot. You know, she has ulterior motives. Kathleen um, used the term telling falsehoods, which means that, you know, you could conclude that I was lying. Um, I think it comes in the form of really unwillingness to hold people even when you find that they are violators, hold them accountable for their behavior. And, and it's not just that it happened to me, but it's happening over and over in this country. And it's happening even in the ways that we talk to children. I mean, we, we tell girls when they're being pinched and punched and having their clothes pulled down in, in elementary school that, you know, don't make a big deal of it. Or it happens when, you know, a teacher says to a girl, well, they're only acting that way because they like you. Yeah. <laughs> That's... Or it happens when, when they just completely deny the truth of the child's experience. So it, it in, in a sense... There are two things going on. One, we are grooming people not to tell authorities when something goes wrong, and we're grooming them to take abuse. And then on the other hand, we are grooming people who might be abusers to assume that their behavior is fine. And so 
what uh, Hal Heflin was talking about is built into our thinking and our culture and the way we deal with people who have experienced some kind of sexual violation or gender violation. So let me, I just interviewed uh, Monica Lewinsky and one of the things that was so striking about her story is that no one really stepped in to help her. It was astonishing how alone she was. I think Clinton's could have stopped a lot of the bullying that happened to her. Were there people who could have changed things for you who should have helped more? Obviously, Joe Biden's been mentioned a number of times who provided over the hearings. Christine Blasey Ford had more support, for sure. But were there people that could have changed things for you? And how do you get people to that moment to do that? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that we don't take note of is that there's a before, during, and after. During the hearing, there was not much help. And neither, there was no help afterwards. I had to go back to a hostile environment in my home state where my job was threatened, where I was receiving bomb threats and rape threats and, you know, death threats. And no one stepped in. Nobody from the federal government stepped in to respond, to ask if I needed any kind of protection or any help. So... I was left to fend for myself. Now, I think that the problem wasn't just an individual problem. What it says is that witnesses who come forward are not valued. That in some ways, especially after the hearings are over, um, they're disposable. And, and, And I think that has a chilling effect on people who have something to say. So look what happened to Anita Hill, in other words. Well, yes. Look what happened to her. And there was no system for protecting her. Mm -hmm. What about during the hearings? Joe Biden presided over those hearings, for example. You know, I I was never looking for the Democrats to um, be my champions. I was looking for fairness. And I think that's a, a lesson that we need to learn, that when people come forward, they're just looking for a fair shake the opportunity to be heard, to have what they say valued and treated with the same weight that what the person they're accusing is saying. And that didn't happen. And that's why I keep talking about the process, the fact that witnesses who wanted to testify about their experiences with Clarence Thomas were not called to come forward. That's a process problem. You know, the FBI was investigating what I had testified to, and and the FBI was under the control of the White House, the same White House that nominated Clarence Thomas. There was a conflict there. So I think that's what we are missing. It wasn't like I thought, okay, I'm going to come forward and the Democrats are going to be on my side and the Republicans are going to be on his side. And that's the way I wanted. What I wanted was as a witness, as a person who had information about the character and fitness of a nominee to be able to come forward and have that information received for what it was and not have it reduced to some kind of anti-Republican nominee. Right. So one of the things that was well known in the last election, Biden declared his candidacy and he called you. Um, Can you did he apologize to you directly or take sufficient responsibility? He took responsibility for the harm that he had done to me. 
What he did not recognize was the harm that he had done to many, many others and people across the country who still talk about how harmful and hurtful that process was to them personally, as well as harmful to people who wanted to come forward with their claims. Because what the Senate Judiciary Committee did was put out there this model of how those claims are received that really did a disservice to victims and survivors. Did you tell him that? I have told him that. And I think what what I really told him and what I wanted him to hear was that as president of the United States, he has the opportunity and I think the responsibility as well to make amends. He has the power to make changes to what the public perceives is the right of victims to come forward. Did you mind the timing, trying to run for president or not? It's just, this is when he came forward. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm sure that it had to do with um, people telling him that you have to do this before you announce. And I'm sure it had to do with a lot of reporters who were asking him whether he had apologized. So, it, you know, it didn't matter the timing. I think whatever the timing is, there's always an opportunity to do better. Yeah. Do you think he's used his power to make amends in the way you hope he would? I, I don't see it yet, um, but I'm hopeful. So when you think of Christine Blasey Ford coming forward 30 years after you did with allegations against uh, Brett Kavanaugh, do you think people reacted to Ford's testimony differently than they did to yours? The outcome was well, similar. Well, and there it is. I mean, they, they, yes, there was a different reaction. I think, so you ask me if there's accountability. There's a different kind of accountability. I think perhaps there is a social accountability that people really do believe that people should suffer some consequences for bad behavior and that they have expanded their definition of what that bad behavior is to include things that people would have accepted in the past is just the way life is. I think, though, what I'm talking about is the accountability in the systems is still lacking. Right. That said, on the other side, um, one tool that's been used to hold people accountable for abuse of power is broadly called cancel culture, not a pair of words I like. But there's pushback, people going too far. I call it accountability culture. Other people have other words. Well, I think that's just a, a, a weapon that people are using at cancel culture. You know, I'm not sure who has been canceled in reality. I, 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 I don't... I'm willing to have a conversation about cancel culture if you're willing to have a conversation about accountability. Right. Do you think uh, you canceled Clarence Thomas or Brett Kavanaugh was canceled by Christine Blasey Ford? <laughs> well, they're on the Supreme Court, so yeah. clearly they were not canceled. You know, that's what I mean. What are, what are we talking about when we say someone has been canceled and has that really happened? I do think that there are ways that people are held accountable that they probably don't like, but that's not the same as being canceled. I think what we've got to come to terms with it is that there has to be some kind of accountability for behavior 
if we ever want it to stop. And if we don't, if we don't have it, we may as well just say that it's completely acceptable. All right. We've had, speaking of which, we've had a huge uh, social and cultural reckoning the past few years with Black Lives Matters and Me Too. I think people are reevaluating how people were judged in the 1990s, like Lewinsky, Britney Spears, you. Is it too little, too late? Or is it, is that fine from your perspective? It's never too late. It's never too late to make amends. Right. So one of the things you said to the Times, you're running out of patience to see change. Um what change are you most impatient to see? And you wrote in your book that we can't rely on the, quote, woke generation for change. What did you mean by that? Well, what I meant was that one of the things that I hear over and over again is that our generation is not going to fix this problem, that another generation will come on because they see differences in a different way and they are less likely to engage in this kind of bad behavior that we know exists now. When, in fact, what we have is a growing amount of online harassment of young people, tweens and teens. And so, to me, that's a red flag that that's not going to be cured by young people, that it's it's going to continue to happen. It's going to move along with them when they go into university and when they go into the workplace. So what I want to come out of that is that every generation takes responsibility for doing it now. And we take responsibility for teaching our children how harmful the the behavior is and counseling for better behavior. Right. Okay. I have last question. You said you'd take Biden's call if it came for the Supreme Court. Do you think you'd be confirmed if you went forward? There, you'd be facing some of the same senators, Chuck Grassley, Pat Leahy, you faced in 1991. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> They're still there. <laughs> so um, I don't know. I don't know that I, I don't know that anybody is going to be confirmed. Oh, really? Well, you know, we hope that the votes are there for Biden's nominee. But in these times, you know, we had uh, a nominee in the Obama administration that didn't even get a hearing. Right. But you're hoping so. I think they'd have a hard time not confirming you. <laughs> of course they would. And, and uh, clearly, I know there would be a hard time getting me through confirmation. And that's one of the things that, of course, if I were contacted, that I would consider whether or not the nomination would go through, as opposed to somebody else who would be more likely to be put on the court. And And honestly, I care enough about the court that I want that more than my being able to sit on the sit. Although that would be interesting. I'd like to be in those meetings. I'd love to hear some of those senators treat you with the respect you deserved back then and continue to deserve today. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blake Nishik, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orm. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Andrea Lopez-Cruzado. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Christina Samuluski. The senior editor of Sway is Naeem Araza, and the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio is Irene Noguchi. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. 
If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with a pillow to scream into when you hear the phrase scorned woman, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.